This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to another edition of the Pipeline Podcast, our first post-draft edition of the Pipeline Podcast. I'm Jason Ratliff here with... Jonathan Mayo and Jim Callis and guys, it felt like forever. We were looking ahead to the draft, so much uncertainty, not knowing what was going to happen, when it was going to be, how it was going to look, how long it was going to be. It finally happened. Uh, how did the reality compare to your expectations? Well, I, I got to say that uh, we finished day two after round five and, I was looking around like, you know, that's it. We're done. I mean, Jim and I are so used to doing rounds six through 10 that uh, we, we could have, uh, we could have kept going. Yeah. You know, I said this before. I mean, I do think one of the few silver linings is the draft was much more in the spotlight than it normally would be this time of year. Cause nothing else was going on. And, um, you know, from a, a personal selfish standpoint, <laughs> I really like day two at night rather than working until two in the morning and then having to get up at the, you know, very early and be in a meeting at 9 a.m. to jump back on a, you know, eight round, pick a minute, you know, rapid fire, six hour broadcast. Like, so day two was crazy, like kind of waiting for the draft to roll around <laughs> at, at 5 p.m. and have a nice lunch and just kind of chill out. Like, that was cool. But I, I thought all in all, I mean, from a broadcast standpoint, I, I liked having cameras and more players' homes. Um, I, I got some feedback from from somebody. I hadn't really thought about this because you're in the middle of broadcast. You're not considering it. Who said they actually liked the draft better this year without the kind of faux representatives from each team with phones on their desks in Studio 42. And, oh, hey, let's go interview Dwight Evans, you know, randomly in the middle of broadcast at the Focus was just on the players. And, and I really liked day two with, with instead of it just being Scott Ron and Jonathan and myself, you know, rapid fire, pick a minute, you know, we had Dan O'Dowd and Greg Amsinger and Harold Reynolds for part of it and tape comments from, from Tim Corbin, the Vanderbilt coach and Al Leiter and um, Carlos Clausa from baseball America. And the picks were two minutes each instead of one minute. And they had a lot of time to breathe. And then, you know, Greg and Dan would oftentimes, you know, in the fourth round, okay, let's look at what the Potters have done so far. I, I really liked it. And I, I'm guessing we probably won't get day two, like, like we had it this year going forward. But man, if I could, if I could vote for that, I, I you know, I got a lot of positive feedback too from people who, who liked the, the increased emphasis. And we did, we weren't on all of them, but we were Jonathan six draft specials um, leading up to the draft. I mean, I mean, if you like the draft, you got a lot of a lot of draft information this year, more more so than usual. So, how about in terms of the way the draft shook out, the draft itself shook out, and how teams uh, used their picks, uh, which players were taken, the type of players that were taken. I know there was uh, with it being shortened to five rounds. You know, there were some questions about how that would work. And uh, I know you guys projected before the draft. Um, I, th I think you estimated that, what, 100 and what, what did you guess? 125 or 35 out of, out of the 160 that were taken would be guys from our top 200 list. And, and it ended up being almost exactly what you had projected, I think. Nailed it. We nailed it. Um... Yeah, I, you know, I think it kind of largely went the way we thought it would. I know that a lot of people wanted to make a big deal about, you know, how college heavy it was. And yes, there were more college players than high school players by a decent amount without looking from year to year, probably slightly skewed in that direction. But this was a draft, a college heavy class to begin with. So I don't really, I don't think that the, shortness of the draft impacted those numbers as much as people wanted to believe they did. Uh, you know, the, the top high school players went up top 
or, you know, or in the top couple of rounds, they're going to get paid. You know, I think by and large, there'll probably be one or two out, outlying exceptions, but I think everyone who got drafted in the 160 picks are going to sign. So like, I don't know that it was all that different. It was just shorter. Um, I think, you know, Jim, the only other thing that I would say is that that was a mildly surprising is that teams went a little further off the board in rounds four and five to find players who are willing to sign than maybe we would have predicted. Um, although, I mean, I think we talked about this. I mean, I, I agree with you, Jonathan. I mean, there were 40, I think 44 high school players, if I'm counting this right, taken in the five rounds. And I know last year, 40 high school players got bonuses of 600,000 or more. Not all these guys will get that much, but roughly the same amount of high school guys are, are going to get paid as, as were paid last year. And I mean, I think we did discuss, you know, you weren't going to see, I mean, we, we have seen a couple guys sign for 20, which is the max you could sign for as a free agent. Those are kind of your, I guess the new fifth round senior sign. But I, I felt like from talking to teams, you weren't going to see too many straight college seniors taken. What you were going to get to save money was let's squeeze a college junior to sign for a hundred thousand or 80,000 in round four or five. And we saw some of that. Um, but yeah, I, I thought for the most part, it was fairly similar to what a, a normal first five rounds of a draft would look like. You, you, you just didn't have any rounds after this. Um, so um, you know, I mean, there were surprise picks, but there weren't, you know, it, it, overall, the way it played out, I, I thought it kind of played out as, as teams expected. Let's talk about some of those surprise picks. That was actually a question that just popped in my head as you were talking. Um, I know we want to talk a little bit about some of your favorite picks uh, from this draft. What about surprise picks? Uh, putting you on the spot here. Any pick or two that stands out to either of you as uh, looking back as a big surprise in this draft? Well, I think the biggest was Nick York. I mean, to the point where <laughs> you were giving us a heads up, Jason, to uh, so we could prepare, like I was doing the pick-by-pick commentary, and we could work ahead a little bit because you were finding out, I think, a few seconds before the picks were announced. And I honestly thought you were joking i was like okay come on like why are, why are you screwing around with us like you're not serious are you because i had i know jonathan i think you had scouts texting you too i had everybody telling me okay i think this is p crow armstrong here and then jason's slacking at us hey it's nick york and i'm like come on jason stop fooling around like like really who <laughs> who, who is it like 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 what do you mean nick york come on you can do better than that um no so the nick york one i think like i i called it i really think that was the biggest surprise first round pick since hayden simpson and you know, I, I did find out later that there, there was, I mean, you can agree or disagree with it, but there was method to the Red Sox madness. They didn't have a second round pick this year because they lost that for sign stealing. They really liked Nick York. Um, you know, I know Jonathan, he's, he's your guy on the West Coast, and he was a guy who, you know, was kind of, you know, surging before the season shut down. I mean, he's, he's an all-bat guy, questions about defensive position, questions about his shoulder, because I think I remember correctly, Jonathan, he has anchors in his shoulder. He DH most of right. last year. So he's an all back guy. Now, some guys think it's a really good bat. I actually had somebody with another team tell me that they had reports of six hits, six power on Nick York. So the way the Red Sox, I think, were looking at this was they really liked Nick York. They also wanted to be able to try to go big in the third round. And they also didn't think Nick York was going to get in the third round. So they, they, they went all in on Nick York, who will sign for below slot and saved enough money so then they could go – you know, in their minds, you know, hey, we'll, 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 we'll take it, we'll, you know, we'll roll some dice and spend some money in the third round. And in the third round, they took Blaze Jordan, who is an ultimate roll the dice player, and that he, he might have as much raw power as just about anybody in this draft. He's hitting 500 foot home runs with metal bats when he's 13 years old. But there's questions on the swing and miss and the position on him, too. But it was kind of, you know, linked to being able to, to pay Blaze Jordan in the third round. And I mean, you, yeah, you mean, whether you like it or not, you, you certainly have to give him credit, I guess, for being convicted on Nick York and, and being aggressive. Yeah, I think, um, uh, and it, just to be clear, York DH'd as a junior. He did return to the infield this year, but the arm hadn't come back. So take that for what it's worth. And, I, you know, there were areas scouts who really liked him but didn't think he was signable. Um, of course, I think when they were talking signability with him, they weren't thinking of him as a first-rounder. So that's how that ends up working working out. I think um, since you picked a guy from from – my area of the country, the, the, the next most surprising one, I think had to have been Evan Carter, right? 
<laughs> Before you talk about him, I just want to say, Jonathan, I was going to say the funny thing about Evan Carter is, so like whenever a guy gets picked who MLB Network isn't prepared for, which is very few guys, there's like this mild sense of panic. Like, hey, who has anything on Evan Carter? And I swear the thought going through my mind was, oh, it's got to be one of Jonathan's guys. I've never heard of Evan Carter. Um, and, and I was wrong. And I want people to recognize how unusual it is for Jim Callis to at in a in the second round especially to not even recognize a name. Um, now college seniors years past like that kind of goes out the window, but that was about in some ways that was closer to Hayden Simpson, who I remember Jim, you and I were up in the in the bird's eye view that year for the draft. And you happened to know him because you had written the Alabama state list and he was at the very end of that list. Otherwise, we would have all been blinking our eyes at each other, I think. But um, yeah, Evan Carter was one where I, and well, the funny thing is I did the same thing because no one answered. And I was like, oh, shoot, is this some like, is this a guy that I should know? And then we saw he was from Tennessee, like, no. And then I'm like, well, Jim doesn't know who he is. So like that was at least Nick York. I knew who he was. Um you know, he was 139th on our top 200, but Evan Carter was just a completely uh, out of nowhere. But, you know, they went, the, the Rangers kind of went all in on really sort of projectable. They took Dylan McLean later, who's a super projectable lefty from the Pacific Northwest. Um, but, like, his now stuff is kind of questionable. So uh, I think that's kind of, after taking Justin Foscue in the first round, they kind of went all in on the, on the projectable high school type players. And then I think the next one who, who really threw us for loop was, was Addison coffee, who the white Sox took in the third round out of Wabash Valley. But at least that one, I could kind of see where they were coming from. I mean, he's a guy, he was a prospect as a, as a shortstop coming out of Indiana and he was going to Arizona state at that point. And I mean, but they're clearly looking to save money. The white Sox were after taking Jared Kelly in round two, who was a guy who, who had some, you know, was linked to them some with their first round pick at number 11, that Addison coffee was clearly helping to pay, you know, and their subsequent picks clearly helping to pay for taking a first round talent in the second round. But yeah, I, I went, I went Jonathan from thinking, you know, I wonder if I'm going to be stumped by anybody. I mean, I had my, my, my typical 11 pages of notes and eight point type on however many hundred players from my half of the country. Wonder like, can I go through five rounds and know every guy? Like, I think I knew every guy in the first five rounds from my half last year. And, um, and then like midway through the second round, I was like, what Evan Carter? I had, I think I had like 10 or 12 high school players from Tennessee and I did not have Evan Carter as one of my 10 or 12 high school players. So yeah, it, that was a shocker. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking back at uh, at our Slack messages while the draft was going on, and these are pretty comical. Um, I said, Evan Carter to the Rangers, and Jim's re- reply was, who is that? Because <laughs> <laughs> well, you didn't give us his school. So I was like, okay, like what school is that? I've never heard of this guy. And then you talk about not believing me on, on Nick York. Uh, first... Jim's first response was really Nick York. And then, and then he said, what are you talking about? Just angering me. <laughs> I did. I thought you were just messing with this, like trying to get like, I, I honestly thought you were trying to get me to, to dictate first round commentary on Nick York uh, just for messing around. And I was like, come on, this isn't right. Well, it, it also, it also a- adding to it is the fact that you, you are a fan of that particular franchise. Yeah, that is true. I grew I grew up a Red Sox fan, and, and then right. Jason's like, it's in the spreadsheet I'm looking at, and uh, and I'm like, other teams say PCA, and then Jason, I don't know what this was like. Man, 1977 was crazy with the high school picks, and my response was, you're killing me. Like like, what are we doing here? But then but then you sent, <laughs> well, I can't repeat my comment after this. Is you sent the commissioner's card. I have dogs going crazy here. They're they're upset about Nick York apparently too. And then I, I had an expletive laden response. Uh, yeah, to, to I was not going to read that one. Yes, well, like, and that that was where I actually believed you, where you showed us the graphic that they were putting in in Rob Manfred's hands. That yes, um, I don't know what my family's doing here to release dogs upon me, but uh, apparently we're going to bark like crazy here. So. But yeah, it was that was I, I really thought you were just messing with us for the sake of messing it with us in the middle of the first round. I would never. Okay, so let's uh, let's switch gears from 
surprise picks to some of your favorite picks of the draft. We did a story uh, where Jim, you, Jonathan, and Mike uh, each pick made your uh, your favorite pick for each team. Uh, so you have those at your disposal. But what what was overall your your favorite pick of the draft? Well, we we did favorite pick outside the first round. Um, you can expand it. We we don't have to stick to uh, outside of the first round. I'm I'm curious to see whether your favorite picks uh, were first rounders or uh, was somebody that came after the first round. Well, if I could start, I mean, I, you know me, I'll pick multiple. But you know, I thought there were a number of great values. I thought the Marlins getting Dax Fulton in the second round, the best high school lefty in the draft, was a great value. We mentioned Jared Wilcox to the White Sox in the second round. Everybody was projecting the first round. The Potters getting Cole Wilcox in the third round, you know, was a, a guy who was projected in a lot of first rounds. And, and I thought right at the end of the draft, the Braves with Bryce Elder in the fifth round, he may be – Bryce Elder might be the best player they drafted. They had kind of a, a, a against a consensus draft. So I, I thought all of those were, were very good value picks. Yeah, I'll uh, you know I'll, I'll start sort of the the, the front of the draft. Um, you know, I, I I always have been and will continue to be a huge Robert Hassel fan, and I think just that's a perfect fit for him with the Padres. They like they like high school hitters. Um, I like the sort of Hasselveen, you know eight at eight and nine. Uh, if you had told me the hassle was going to go before Veen, I don't think I would have believed you as we entered uh, draft day. Um, but I, I really like, I really like that pick. Um, I really like, I'll be, uh, I'll be a bit of a Homer and I think I'll pick um, Nick Garcia, the Pirates third pick. Uh, just, I like it. You know, it's a division three guy, but there's a ton of upside. Um with him just because he's not been pitching for that long. He was an infielder first, a um, lot of arm strength, good breaking ball. Uh, he's just figuring it out. Um, so I thought to get a guy like that in the third round, and it's not like they had to you know, overpay, they'll have to overpay for Jared Jones. Um, but I thought they did a nice job getting him. So you both mentioned a Padres pick, and uh, that leads us pretty neatly into – our next topic, which is the best hauls in this draft in terms of uh, which teams did the best in this draft. And obviously this goes with the clear caveat that we certainly will not know for many years. No, several we, know. Years. we know right uh, now. <laughs> uh, coming from the guy who, uh, when I said it would be interesting to look back at your previous uh, best haul stories, uh, you, you didn't like that idea. Well, I, I just said, I mean, in, in, for obvious reasons, every year when I do the story, and I always enjoy looking at it, it's always the teams that have extra picks and or are picking at the top of the draft. Like, you very rarely, like, have a team that's picking 18th and has only one pick in each round winds up with, like, a, a draft that looks great on paper right away. That's all. I just I think the draft is is somewhat random in how it turns out because it's so difficult to to just crush the draft that if you actually looked back at who had the top three drafts and who I picked had the top three drafts when we actually know, I'm not sure there would be a great correlation despite my hard work. So, right. So this year um, on your list of the six teams that did the best in, in this draft. Uh, you have the Tigers at the top, who obviously had the number one overall pick, and that that led me to look back to see how often that's been the case. I thought, well, maybe you know, maybe nearly every year that's been the case, and in fact, it has not been. Looking back over the past five years, um, each of the past two years, it has not been the team with the number one overall pick. Uh, you have to go back to 2017 when the Twins had the number one overall pick. And Royce Lewis, you had them at the top of the list. And the year before that, when the Phillies had uh, the number one overall pick. With yeah, which that pick. worked out well. Yeah, um, but, but even there, though, Jason, I mean, just to play devil's advocate, in 2019, like I could have told you, if you had asked me before the draft, who's going to have the best haul when you write this story? I would have said, oh, it'll be the Diamondbacks because they have seven of the first 64 picks. 
And if you'd asked me in 2018, I probably would have said, oh, it'll be the Rays because they have three first-round picks. I had the Rays first and the Royals second, and they each had three first-round picks. So the years I didn't go with the number one overall pick, it was with teams that had like an unusually high number of picks. And even, I know you track back to 15, I didn't take, you know, I didn't take the Braves with the number one pick that year, but I took the Astros who had the number two pick and the number five pick and a supplemental first round pick. So, I mean, not, not to diminish my own work. I, I just think it's all, it's often the teams that are picking at the top of the draft and have extra picks because you just get extra opportunities at the better players. Yeah, and that was that was the case this year. Uh, your list: Tigers number one, Marlins number two, and you mentioned them uh, with the uh, value that they got with their second round pick. Rockies number three, Orioles number four, Padres five, Indians six, and all those teams uh, had extra picks. And then you had a uh, uh, an honorable mention in the Blue Jays. Uh, for best haul for any team without extra picks. Right, and I even gave the Phillies a nod for teams missing a pick. But you know, even in that top six, outside the Indians, who I had at six, all those other teams had extra picks and picked in the top nine. But you know what I thought was interesting, and, and we hit on this on the draft, is that the Tigers, who the strength of their farm system is clearly pitching, and look, they're rebuilding, that's why they have the number one pick, took all hitters. And then by contrast... The Marlins, who are also, you know, they're picking third, rebuilding, and they actually have more of a balanced farm system, but they took literally all pitchers. And, I mean, again, I mean, we've had, you know, we haven't had five-round drafts before, but, like, I don't I, I don't remember, you know, having the, you know, the one and two teams taking such extreme approaches at the top of the draft uh, you know, like that. I, I mean, that was, I thought it was like, if you told me the Tigers were going to take mostly hitters, I actually would have, that, that would have surprised me because of the strength of this draft was college pitching. Um, but like, I could see that, you know, the Marlins surprised me. They, they just pounded, you know, six pitchers in a row and came up with some pretty good arms. I mean, did that catch you off guard at all, Jonathan, that, that, that those teams were that extreme? Not, not really. I, I mean, I think that it's, um, you know, it's just a question of what they felt was the best available player, I think, at that time. I like that they, they didn't skew too much towards, like, the, that was the, the, the strength of the class. Now, going in, you know, we knew t- the Tigers were going to take uh, – they were going to take Torkelson. I would have thought they would have picked up some pitching. Uh, they do have pitching depth in their system. Um, and maybe with a shorter draft, you know, normally you don't worry, sort of match it up based on what's in your organization. But knowing that they only had – you know, a certain amount of picks to make. Maybe they decided since, well, you know, we've got a good amount of pitching. Um, let's focus more on hitting. And maybe that was even a round by round, like, all right, we've got this guy, you know, on the hitting side, this guy on the pitching side. Well, let's go with the hitter, you know, and that's why, why it ended up that way. I don't, I don't, I don't know. I like the Indians, you know, of the teams that you had on there. Um, I, I really like what they did. Cause I think that even the, uh, like the sort of in-between college picks, Tanner Burns and Logan Allen are, are solid, solid uh, college pitchers who I think are, you know, are going to be big leaders. And, you know, I like Tucker. I, I Petey Halpin, I think in a lot of ways is, was a bit underrated. Um, and then Tolentino, I think most people thought was unsignable. So, uh, you know, I thought they did a really nice job. I am a little upset as the homer that I am that the Pirates did not make it into into this list. Well, I was I was just looking at uh, if you look strictly at the top two hundred prospects that each team drafted, um, and you know we we do this uh, with the top prospects list um, when we award prospect points to teams just to kind of give a little better idea of how the teams stand in terms of the elite prospects that they have. It's it's obviously an imperfect uh, system, but it gives you an idea. And if you do that with the uh, each team's draft hall, the teams go in this order, Tigers, Rockies, Marlins, Orioles, Indians, uh, all of which are in Jim's top six. And then there's a gap of three teams, Royals, Pirates, Giants, uh, in between those top five that are all on Jim, on Jim's list, and then the Padres. 
who uh, are the sixth team on Jim's list. So your Pirates are in there. Uh, and, and maybe these are three good teams to, to talk about their draft halls, uh, the Royals, Pirates, and Giants. I was also curious to see what you guys think about the White Sox because their, their draft class, and it's kind of hard to call it a class when they're only five to seven players per team, but their draft strategy uh, looks interesting on paper in that they got two of the top 18 uh, draft prospects overall and then the other five, um, none of whom were ranked in the top 200. Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting. You mentioned the Royals and the Pirates and the Giants, and those were I, – I, I had nine teams in my extra pick class um, that I considered for making the list, and those were the other three teams. And, you know, it, it kind of comes down to, you know, who you like and whatever. I mean, I, I liked all those draft classes. I didn't think they were necessarily as deep as the ones I ranked. You know, like I, I really like the Royals, for instance, getting Asa Lacey. I like Nick Lofton, but I like Nick Lofton's floor more than I like his ceiling. Um, so, you know, lining them up against those other teams that, that hurt them a little bit. I, I'm not, I, I like his upside, but on, you know, kind of the reverse, like Jerry Jones ha, is, is a lower floor guy for me. There, there's a lot of talent there. There's not always a lot of strike throwing. And, and so when I was trying to figure out which teams to eliminate, that was probably, you know, I, I, I cut the pirates there a little bit and, and the giants, I, I thought the giants did what they did last year, which was take guys early that for under slot and that allowed them to go over slot late. But, you know, just looking at our rankings, you know, they took Casey Schmidt in the second round, Jimmy Glowinky in the supplemental second round. And we had those guys ranked more as fourth or fifth round picks. I really liked the Kyle Harrison pick in the third round, but like, I like those drafts, but not quite as much as the top six. They, they were good drafts, but in my mind, it's easy for me to say, I'm sure the teams appreciate me saying this. Like I, I thought they could have even been a little bit better. I love how we just spent like a lot of time at the top talking about like how ridiculous these stories are and how they, they always turn out to not be true. And then like talked about it with like certainty, which classes were better. Well, you got to pick six. Yeah. I, I can't pick 30. Uh, you know, what are we going to, what are we, what are you going to do? And then I, I agree with you on the white Sox, Jason. I, I thought the white Sox, if you were evaluating this by who got the best combination of players, they probably got the best combination of anybody with Jared Kelly and Garrett Crochet, who both ranked in our top 18. Um, and then they, they took three guys to enable them to pay those guys. So it's so not as deep a draft, but, but I, I kind of respect that approach too. you know, go big early, you know, go big as long as you can and then figure out, you know, a way to pay for those guys. But um, you know, and, and I will say, you know, Bailey Horn was, it was a fourth year junior in the fifth round and he is going to come in a discount. He, he missed a year with Tommy John early in his career, but Bailey Horn was a legitimate, uh, you know, six to 10 round guy that, that, that was not a huge reach right there to in the fifth round to pay him. And, and, and I like it. I mean, you know, you, I mean, I, my, my personal belief is you win with stars. So I, I guess, um, you know, getting two of the best 18 players in the draft and, you know, taking discounts the rest of the way to make up for it. I, I, I don't have any problem with that strategy. Yeah, and it, that, that's a hard one, I think, to really compare, right? You know, it's, I guess, quant, you know, quality over quantity. I mean, you're only really bringing in two, uh, like, elite-level players, potentially, and the rest are, you know, relatively unknowns, at least compared to, you know, even though you said Horn is, you know, not that much of a reach for, for round five. But it is hard to compare what bringing in Garrett Crochet and Jared Kelly means compared to a team that brought in, you know, four or five top 200 guys. All right. So let's talk a little bit about uh, some of the players in this year's draft class who we could expect to see in the big leagues quickest. And obviously that uh, when that might be is, is quite clouded right now, but generally speaking, uh, which of the guys in this year's class can we expect to uh, make the rise quick, the most quickly? And because of the uncertainty, when I when I wrote this story, I just ranked them alphabetically because I don't know or you know what's the, what are the circumstances going to be for 2020 versus 2021. But I, I do think it's it's usually easier to go pitcher here. Um, and to me, the most obvious guy because he's already a reliever, and I think you can make uh, a case that he's better than any lefty reliever the Cubs currently have on their roster is Burl Caraway. Um, you know, I mean, you're not going to try to make this guy a starter. 
Um, he's pure reliever. He's not a real big guy. There's effort. But it's a 93-98 mile-an-hour fastball that plays up because it's got great fastball metrics and a downer curveball that, that plays great off that four-seam fastball up in the zone. Um, you know, if we do have a season this year and there's expanded rosters and taxi squads and the Cubs will certainly be trying to contend, I could easily see Burl Caraway getting a chance to help them, uh, you know, try to make the playoffs because at the very least, I, I think he'd be a very tough left on left look for big league hitters. Is it like a, this could be like a Brandon Finnegan kind of thing. I mean, is that, and I would imagine the Cubs sort of had their eye on him. I mean, when a team that actually is expecting or hoping to compete again with this caveat, like if there's a season that that's gotta be a reason why they, they took him when they, yeah, I would think so. I mean, I mean, it used to be college relievers would go in the first round, um, and that didn't work out too much, too well for teams. And now it seems like most of them go in the third round. So I think when you see a guy go in the second round, that's a team thinking that this is a guy who can contribute pretty quickly. All right. So another um, another story we're working on right now is we're taking a look back, uh, three years back in this case, and we're probably going to do another one or two of these where we look back uh, a little further, but we're taking a look back at the 2017 draft class. Uh, So these players have all had a little bit of time now to kind of establish themselves, set themselves on their uh, professional career course. Uh, I believe four of them, if I'm not mistaken, have uh, reached the big leagues already. Um, the guys, I know it's it's early in, in this process. This story isn't going to run until the end of the week. But looking back at that two seven, 2017 draft class, uh, what, what are you seeing so far? Um, I don't know. It's sort of incomplete, I think. It's, uh, it's, it's an interesting time to start with uh, because, you know, I think you, you mentioned, you know, a small handful have made it to the big leagues, a couple – graduated off at least I had one who graduated off um I think maybe two two have graduated off um and then you know there are some some of our the top prospects on our top 100 list are from this class but um it seems kind of a mixed bag especially among the high school draftees who were 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 taken high there are some who are still very much you know top 10 prospects and then there are ones who have really kind of kind of slid and aren't what a lot of people hope they would be. Yeah. You know, it's, um, yeah, it, it's interesting because these guys really haven't had a chance to make much of an impact yet. You know, there's, there's you, you said, Jason, there's four first round picks, you know, Brennan McKay, Kyle Wright, Adam Hazley and, and Keston here have made it to the big leagues. And there's, there's three long shots. I mean, you got Nick Marjavicious in the seventh round, James Karinchak in the ninth round and Josh Rojas in the 26th round have also made it there. So, so this story is pretty much, still remaining to be told. Um, you know, I, I, if you look at our top 100 list right now, four of the top nine players on that list are 2017 first-rounders. You know, Mackenzie Gore, you can never say enough about Mackenzie Gore, obviously. Um, Joe Adele, Nate Pearson, and Royce Lewis. And I think there's 19 total players from the 2017 draft on uh, the top 100. Um, and this, I think, really would, you know, been a year when a lot of these guys graduated, and now we'll, we'll have to see. But um, you know, if that said, I, I was looking back at, at the, the class at the time and a lot of the best college pitchers that year got hurt. It, it was a draft that, that I think regressed a little bit in terms of overall talent over the course of the spring. Cause a lot of pitchers went backwards. And I mean, there are some guys who, who have really struggled, you know, Austin Beck was a sixth overall pick and he just really hasn't hit Taven Smith, the seventh overall pick. Hasn't shown a lot of power. Did make some progress in Double A toward the end of the last year. Um, you know, Jake Berger, you know, blew out both of his Achilles. Hasn't played in a couple of years. I mean, Nick Prado with the Royals has really struggled. Um, so I, I think it's interesting to look at where these guys are now because it's kind of all over the place. I, I thought one of the best picks at the time. I don't know, Jason. You'll have to tell me if I had them as ranked as one of the best drafts. I, I thought the Dodgers getting Jaron Kendall at twenty three was an absolute steal. And Jaron Kendall hasn't hit at all in pro ball. So uh, these guys are kind of all over the place. I was trying to take a quick look to see how many of these 2017 top picks uh, are not on a team top 30 list. And it looks like 
uh, Logan Warmoth of the Blue Jays. Uh, there, there are some who have graduated from the top 30 list. Uh, Scott Hurst was the Cardinals' top pick that year. He was The Cardinals didn't have a pick until the third round, I believe it was. He was their top pick, and he is not on the Cardinals' top 30 list. Um, is there anyone else that is not on a top 30 that – is Quentin Holmes? I would say I, I didn't even look, but that, that was yeah. the two the teams that I, I write. I Quentin Holmes and Jaron Kendall aren't on top thirty lists, so those those two were my two. And Brendan Little with the Cubs is hanging on barely at this point. All right, so that's looking back a little bit. Uh, let's also look forward a little bit now. Uh, something that we do around this time each year, coming off. This year's draft is to look ahead at the next year's draft class. And that's always uh, somewhat difficult. Uh, we've the past couple of years, I think we've, we've done a mock draft. And while it's extremely early, obviously to do that, it's a fun way to do it. Um, this year it actually ended up being not too far off uh, just because of the way things played out and the fact that, Players didn't play much between the time that, uh, that that was done last year and the time that the draft actually occurred this year. Um, and this year, I think, will be, uh, you know, potentially a similar case. But, uh, Jonathan, you've been looking at, ahead a little bit to the 2021 draft class. And um, before we talk about any of the individual players, um, any thoughts on or any feedback on what that class in general is going to look like in terms of demographics, uh, the strength of the class overall? Well, I mean, the hardest thing is that it's often the case when we do this story every year, you know, the scouting industry is so hyper-focused on that year's draft class. And, you know, what a lot of people don't know is typically almost immediately after the draft scouts, you know, area scouts are, are, are going out and, hitting the showcase circuit and summer leagues and things like that to start building these follow lists. So often when we do this story, there's not a whole lot of information out there. There's even less information out than normal because, uh, you know, because of the lack of spring. Now, while scouts don't focus on next year's class, they might make a note or file a quick follow report, things like that. But so it, it was, it was tough to, to get, you know, much feedback at all when putting this together. I don't know that I would um, know yet whether, you know, what, whether there's a, a particular strength, like just looking at the top 20 I'm working at, it's 11 college guys, nine high school guys, uh, a good mix of position players, not a ton of college pitching, um, you know, by comparison other than, you know, the, the guys at the top, like at the very, very top. Um, so, I mean, that like, I, I wouldn't want to draw too many conclusions because, I mean, I literally had scouts get back to me. Like, yeah. I've only ever seen one guy on this list. So it's, uh, and, and they're not, you know, going to necessarily be able to run out and see a lot of them this summer because a lot of those things are not taking place. Yeah, I think a couple guys at the, top of the list are, are pretty well-known commodities uh, were uh, highly regarded high school arms and then went on to Vanderbilt um, and uh, have made uh, their names known even more there in Kumar Rocker and Jack Leiter. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Go, Go ahead, Jim. Uh, no, I was no, going to say, like, we, we both work at MLB Network and, you know, a lot of people, I think it would be fair to say, kind of we're incredulous that, you know, Jack Leiter, you know, his father Al works for the network and I thought did a great job breaking down pictures on this year's draft broadcast. Just could not believe that Jack Leiter would turn down potentially $4 million to go to Vanderbilt. Um, and, you know, having, you know, covered Jack at the Under Armour game and also the MLB four tournament and talking to Al at those events, you know, Al signed out of high school and never got to go to college. And obviously the family's well off and he wanted Jack to have that college experience, Jack Leiter is going to make, you know, if he stays on this path, a lot more than $4 million. So he, I mean, I think this is another great advertisement for, for college baseball is that, you know, you can be a top prospect out of high school, 
go to college and come out even further ahead and get a couple of years of the college experience. So, um, you know, it's, it's kind of cool to see. I, I just, I remember watching Jack later at the Under Armour game before his senior year had a really good curveball. you know, velocity hadn't really picked up and he was interesting. And, and Al was a little torn because Jack was just starting to kind of cross that threshold of, you know, interesting guy, but he's definitely going to Vanderbilt to like, Hey, somebody might pay him. And Al was really torn. And it's been kind of fun to watch Jack. I mean, he didn't get anywhere close to full season, but he was really spectacular this year as a freshman. And, and even before things got shut down, when I was in, in Yankees camp, I was talking to, to Anthony Volpe last year's Yankees first round pick and, and high school teammate of Jack Leiter. And he was watching Jack from afar and, and really enjoying watching how he was, he, he was doing. So it'll be, it'll be interesting. Like I, I don't, I am 99.9% sure no team has ever had the first two picks in the draft. I do think the closest a team has ever come would be 1978 Arizona State. I want to say that, that Bob Horner was number one and that Hubie Brooks was number three. And it would be kind of interesting wow. if they could actually pull that off. That's another demonstration of me being able to remember things from my childhood and early adulthood much better than I can remember things from last week. <laughs> yeah, I was funny because I was thinking of Garrett Cole – and Trevor Bauer um, from UCLA. And that was one in, I don't remember where Trevor Bauer went. Was he three was also? He, he was three also. So there you go. Yes. Yeah. See, I can remember um, 1978, but not 2011. So, yeah. So there you go. 78, uh, 78 top five picks. Not bad. Bob Horner, Lloyd Mosby, Hubie Brooks, Mike Morgan, Andy Hawkins. And then the next six guys never played in the big leagues before we get to Peter Gibson. Um, you know, it's interesting just looking at those two guys at Rocker and Lighter for a minute. I think what's so, you know, makes it even more interesting is that they're much different pitchers. You know, Rocker is still, you know, pure power, um, obviously incredibly effective, uh, but much more uh, of that, you know, velocity, hard throwing kind of guy he's a beast on the mound and lighter just carves up hitters yes he throws throws a little bit you know a little bit harder than he did uh you know after a year in college i think it was right around 92 miles an hour and as you mentioned a small sample size um this year um but it is it, it isn't they, they kind of offset each other very soon so scouts that go in f- for two days will get very different looks at right-handed pitchers who could go at the top of next year's draft so Rocker has, has climbed back atop this list. And I, and I say climb back atop because it, it seems like, was it around this time heading into uh, his senior year of high school that he was considered, I feel like he was considered at one point early on to be the front runner, a front runner to go number one and then sort of faded over the course of that year back in high school. Yeah. Yeah. He, I don't think anybody thought a high school, like he was necessarily going to be the first high school ready to go one, one, but I, he did go into the summer as the, he was, he was the best high school pitching prospect going into that summer. And then by the end of the summer, not that he had a bad summer, he wasn't even the best high school pitching prospect in the state because Ethan Hankins had a spectacular summer. And then he was, you know, he showed good stuff, and he was kind of inconsistent with his command during the spring. And there's another guy, you know, who, you know, had he been signable, would have gone in the first two rounds. And now, you know, he wound up going in the 38th round because he wasn't, and now he's going to make a lot more money. Looking back at uh, some, an early high school draft prospects ranking um, for this year's, this coming year's uh college juniors that we're talking about now. Um, and a lot of these guys obviously got drafted and signed, but around this time back in 2017, when we were looking ahead to the 2018 draft, uh, Bryce Terang was number one, Ethan Hankins, number two, Kumar Rocker, three, Matt Libator, number four, and uh, Jared Kalenic, number five. That top 10 list was rounded out by Will Banfield, Nolan Gorman, Ryan Weathers, Mason Denneberg, and Nander DeSatis. Nander DeSatis hmm. still available uh, as a $20,000 free agent this yeah. year after not getting drafted and, and quite possibly could be part of the 2021 uh, uh, draft as well. 
Yeah, I, I expect him to be. He was a draft eligible sophomore, but he and Rocker are the only two from that group that didn't sign, right? Uh, you you mentioned uh, some of the yeah. non drafted free agents, and I I wanted to talk a little bit about that. Um, but quickly uh, looking at the the top twenty twenty one draft prospects, we talked about uh, a couple of the college arms on there. Um, and Jonathan, you mentioned kind of a lack of pitching on the list. And looking at it, it looks like only four. Let's see, five pitchers total. No, I'm sorry, six. Um, and one of them we have listed as third base slap handed pitcher in Brady House. Yeah, he's he's and he's a legitimate two way guy. Um, you know, I was just talking to a a scout from Georgia who who said that you know he's like he's 92 to 95 with his fastball and a lot of scouts put a six on his power so he's gonna be a really interesting one to watch i think in terms of what uh teams prefer him as what he says maybe he prefers to do um but yeah not a lot of pitching and as i'm looking through it again um only well i guess no only two high school pitchers Yep, two prep pitchers, uh, House and Christian Little. Yeah, so um, it, that's uh, that'll be interesting. Now, I think high school pitching is it's it can be so vol- volatile that if some of these guys you know that are, you know just outside of the top twenty or or even well beyond, and there was a normal summer, right? They could jump onto what would be our top one hundred list in the in you know in December. Or if they go out and they have you know really good springs, then they you know they they could move up a lot. Uh, and there's another you know there's a, s- several high school arms in like the next grouping that I think you know we could end up talking about. Of course, without totally knowing you know what the what summer is going to completely look like. Yeah, but we do have uh, a showcase starting uh, tomorrow, as a matter of fact. Um, running through the weekend in the perfect game national showcase in Hoover, Alabama. Uh, and a, a lot of these, uh, a lot of the players that you'll see on our top 20, 2021 draft prospects list will be uh, partaking in, in that event. Uh, so guys, let's talk a little bit about uh, the non-drafted free agents because um you know, with the draft being shortened to five rounds this year, uh, rule was put in place that teams can sign an unlimited number of players who were passed over in the draft for uh, a maximum of $20,000 each. Um, and I think there was a lot of uncertainty about, um, you know, what players might be willing to sign for that amount and, and how many and, and the tack that different teams would take. Uh, we are tracking all of that. We have a, a tracker where we're um, keeping tabs on uh, non-drafted free agents that each team has signed. Uh, what have you seen there so far? You know, not a lot. You know, I, I felt going in, I mean, and obviously we have to August 1 to see how this plays out. So we're, we're very, very early. These guys couldn't sign until Sunday. That just because of all the uncertainty and the smaller draft and fewer minor league teams and a variety of other factors that we would see some significant players sign, you know, like like last year, I keep citing the number. There were 395 players who got six figure bonuses after the fifth round, who obviously if you're in that boat this year, you can only get $20,000 that we might see a good chunk of those guys sign. And and we haven't seen that happen yet. There's been one guy who was on our top 200, there have been, you know, I don't know how many players we have tracked so far that have signed. You know, if there's, it seems like it's about 80 or 100 maybe total who, who've signed. And I know for my half of the country, like, I consider 10 or 15 of them significant. But, you know, even by significant, I mean like guys who might have gone in the first 15 rounds. The vast majority of the early signees would be guys you'd be taking in round 20 or later and not be six-figure guys. You know, I don't think there's any question that based on the very early returns, 
the, the team that has cleaned up most is the Royals, who got the lone player on our top 200, Kale Emshoff, catcher out of Arkansas, Little Rock. And between him, LSU catcher Saul Garza, who's an offensive guy, who has a chance to maybe be a backup catcher. John McMillan of Texas Tech, who's hit 100 miles an hour. Tucker Bradley of Georgia, outfielder who's got some tools. And Chase Wallace, a sinker slider guy out of Tennessee. But the Royals are actually cleaning up on, on, on the most significant guys. If we were to rank, I'm sure we will rank these players at, at some point. But if we were to rank the best players, like the top 10 players who've signed so far, I think all five of those Royals I just mentioned would be on that top 10 list. So that's, that's been the most interesting early development for me. Jim, do you have any, uh, any thoughts as to why that would be, why the Royals have, have been able to uh, thus far sign some of the more highly regarded players that are out there? Yeah. I mean, just chatting with people. Um, And again, I mean, it'll be interesting. Are there going to be more significant guys who sign or are we going to see, you know, guys who would have been six to tenth rounders signed because there haven't been too many of them. But I think it's two reasons. One, I think the Royals are one of the very few teams that very early on came out and said, we're paying all our minor leaguers. We're not furloughing employees. Everybody in this organization matters and we'll continue to pay them, which, you know, considering they have a brand new owner who's never reaped any financial benefits from owning a team yet. Um, it's pretty impressive that that's, that's the owner who, who came out and made that statement very early. Um I think between that and the combination that the Royals are a rebuilding team with a lot of opportunity and they are showing that they care about their players and their personnel. I, you know, from talking to other people with other organizations, I think that combination has, has helped the Royals to this point. All right. Well, we will uh, continue tracking those signings as well as uh, draft signings. We have uh, the draft tracker that uh, many of you probably followed during the draft. Uh, we update that as uh, the drafted players sign. And as I mentioned, we have the tracker for the non-drafted free agents as well, uh, story up on the site now. That's going to do it for this edition of the Pipeline Podcast. For Jim Callis and Jonathan Mayo, I'm Jason Ratliff, and we will talk to you next week. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with h track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey.